You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everybody, it's Kent Davenport. You know, the most common question I get from people is, what does a Broadway producer do? I've been trying to get that message out through blogs and podcasts over the last decade or so, but it's still not working. So what I've decided to do is last week I started a brand new Facebook Live series called Hashtag Every Day is Different, and I'm showing you a real live glimpse into my day-to-day. It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. Just like the page, make sure your notifications are on, and at some point during the day, I'll go live with video giving you an insight into what I do. You'll get a real live sneak peek into what I do, meet with writers, meet with investors. At an ad meeting, you'll see it as it happens live, and all the videos are stored there. So go to my Facebook page right now, click like, and then make sure those notifications are on, and you'll see me live. Now, on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week. One article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport. And, you know, this podcast was originally conceived to be about the business of Broadway. So I've had directors on. I've had producers, writers, critics, you name it. I've had them on. And frankly, in a very discriminatory way, I somehow neglected to include actors as a part of the business. What the hell? I'm like an asshole. Big time shame on me for that. So today I rectify it by bringing one of Broadway's powerhouse actors and one of Broadway's favorite actors to the podcast, six-time Tony nominee. Welcome, Danny Burstein. Welcome. It's great to be here, Ken. Thanks. So any actor that, frankly, has just been in six Broadway shows would be one of note. But Danny literally has six Tony nominations for Drowsy Chaperone, South Pacific, Golden Boy, Cabaret, Follies, and his terrific Tevia in Fiddler. I voted right. for you, by the way. Thank you. You have great taste. Um, <laughs> and, of course, he's been in a whole bunch of other shows. Just check out his IBDB page if you want the full resume. Done tons of work on the big screen and the small screen as well. And if you watched the Tony Awards that year, you were nominated. One of the best bits ever. Oh, All yeah. the roles you played on Law & Order over the years. So do you remember the day you said, I want to be an actor? Yes. It was the day that I went to my orientation when I was 14 for the High School of Performing Arts. The year I auditioned, I was 13 when I auditioned. And the year I auditioned, over 4,000 kids auditioned for the school. And 127 made it in. And I was one of the 127. And I don't know how I got so lucky. My, you know, my dad teaches ancient Greek philosophy and my mom is a painter. And I never, there's, I had nothing in my background that indicated I should be an actor. I just loved it. And I loved plays and I loved reading plays. And I hated reading, but I loved the dialogue form. And it spoke to me. I could understand it. I could get behind people's problems and issues. And I loved hearing them. I have this Socratic dialogue and work things out. And the day of our orientation, we had a teacher there, a fellow used to run the theater department, a guy named Jerry Escow, who was Brando's understudy in Streetcar. He was the head of the, of the drama department. And he said, if you don't want to be an actor for the rest of your life, 
you know, we're 14 years old. Walk out that door right now. Because, you know, it's just too damn hard. And I thought, wow, is this going to be my life? Do I really want to do this? And I, I stayed. And I knew right then that I was going to be there for the long haul. I knew it would, it would be hard, but I just wanted to be there. And I knew I wanted to dedicate my life. So talk to me a little bit about how hard it was when you got out of school and what that struggle was like of a new well, actor in your city. As soon as I got out, I went, got out of the high school of performing arts and I went to Queens College where I met a fellow named Ed Greenberg who ran the St. Louis Muni. He was the producer out there and had opened up Lincoln Center with Richard Rogers, the musical theater at Lincoln Center. And I loved him. He became my mentor. And when I was 19, he gave me my equity card out there in St. Louis. And I loved going back every summer to do shows at the Muni. And then I graduated from Queens College and I thought, well, here I am. I'm going to take the world by storm. And all anybody wanted to see me for was musicals, big musicals, and put me in the chorus. And, and I thought, nope. That's not what I want to do. I came into this business to be an actor, to say important things and talk about important ideas. And also, you know, I just didn't want to be in the chorus, but I didn't have anything on my resume that would indicate that I could do anything else, except that I did study at the High School of Performing Arts. You know, somebody doing streetcar when you're 15, they sort of laugh, and understandably. So I went back to grad school after a year, and I went to the University of California, San Diego, where the La Jolla Playhouse is in residence, and Des Mackinoff was running the, the theater at that point, and did a lot of good shows there, and Shakespeare, and a lot of classical plays, and came out of there ready to take the world by storm. And on my drive back to New York City, I got a call from Queens College asking me if I wanted to teach. And now that I had a master's, I could. So I thought, well, I've got no other prospects. I'll, I'll teach a couple of classes in acting and theater. And I got back to New York, started teaching, and two weeks into my teaching, I started getting calls and auditions. And my auditioning was interfering with my teaching life, and so I only stayed at Queens College one semester and never stopped working after that. When you So when you came back here after school and they wanted to put you in the course, you were getting offers to be in the course of musicals. You were yeah. getting opportunities. Yeah. That's, so that's a very hard decision for an actor to make of like, yeah. no, I'm going to turn down work because I feel like I should be doing yeah. a better thing. The harder, the harder decision came later on when I had kids and I was doing class act on Broadway because they, they'd asked me to understudy Lonnie Price and that. And I did. But after that closed, I got offers to go into Fiddler on the Roof, ironically, as an understudy and also hairspray and Boy, did I need the money and, you know, the kids and all that. But I turned them both down because I knew I wasn't cut out to be an understudy, to sit upstairs and to run to the back of the house and watch certain parts of the show and then go back upstairs and then go on once every three weeks or three months. It just wasn't in the cards for me, and I knew that. It's not what I wanted to do. Where do you think you got that confidence? I'm, I was, I'm so <laughs> stupid and naive. I just got lucky. I, I didn't know how lucky I'd have to be. But you, you really do. It really does take a little bit of luck in this business. You have to be at the right place at the right time. When I got the offer to do the reading for Drowsy Chaperone, I just got a phone call from Roy Miller, God rest his soul. 
And he said, I saw you in a reading, a reading that I wasn't even supposed to do. I just filled in at the last minute because my friend got a commercial. I did this reading. Roy Miller was there. He said, I saw you in this, and I think you'd be great for this role in Drazi Chaperone. His name is Aldolfo. And I was doing other things at the same time. And my wife was sitting there listening as I was on the phone with him. And, and she sort of waved her hand at me and said, do it, do it. Sounds funny. Do it. Because I was up, I was so close to just turning it down and going, you know, I'll, I'm going to pass. But I said, okay, because my wife said, do it, do it. And it was, it's just stupid things like that that just happened to fall out of thin air that just were blessings in my life. All of a sudden, at 41 or 42, I can't even remember, 41, people were saying to me, where have you been? <laughs> and I've been working. An overnight sensation. Exactly. I've been working, doing a lot of stuff, but I, I wasn't really on the map in a certain way, the way I wanted to be. And the big advice there is just listen to your wife always. <laughs> well, listen to my wife anyway. <laughs> and talk to me about the training that you went through. I mean, how, how much of, you know, we often think that, oh, actors are all just born with it, but... It's like a CPA or a lawyer. I mean, there's years of schooling. In yes, this. and I uh, thank God I went to the High School of Performing Arts because they didn't think of it as sort of an arts school, you know, in sort of in any kind of ethereal way or in any kind of arty way or granola crunchy way. It was a vocational school. And so we learned basic skills. We read books, and we read books, of course, on the method and, and other other books from other people, Uta Hagen's book and and on and on. And our guest teachers were all working professional. And they exposed us to every type of theater. We had dance classes, voice and diction classes, acting classes, as well as, of course, the normal academic classes so we could get through high school and get that degree. But it was, it trained me to take it seriously as, as a skill. And also it prepared me to take it seriously as a business because it's not just, you know, you have to be prepared to deal with a lot of business interactions over the course of your career. And you have to be smart about that too. And early on, I tell people to say yes to everything within reason. Of course, you know, don't go out and do porn. Kids, don't do porn. <laughs> Another <laughs> but, great takeaway from the university. <laughs> but say yes to everything when you're starting out. Because as Jack Klugman said to me, you know, years ago, when my son was born, we were working 25 years ago, my son just turned 25. He said, the more you work, the more you work. And he's absolutely right. You know, you make all these connections and people think of you, you're on the radar and it's really, really important early on. I, you know, I'm lousy, 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 I'll tell you honestly, at self-promotion. People say, you know, why don't you let me know when you're doing this? Even on my own Facebook page with my friends, I'm more political than I am. I, I, than I, I don't put stuff about myself in shows, you know, because they're so fickle anyway. I don't tell people I'm in a show until after it's closed. So that would be my uh, little piece of advice. What was the question? <laughs> well, actually, I was going to ask you about marketing yourself as a performer today yeah. and you, it sounds like you don't do any of that. And, but... I, I don't, but here's one thing that I, I do do. I don't allow people to pigeonhole. I won't do stuff 
that I've done before, which I've been I've been offered all the time. Hey, come back and you know, unless it's a one night thing and they're paying fifty grand or something like that, you know, which has never happened. But if I think for me the job is for me to try and stretch your muscles every single time and get scared every single time and try things that you've never done before, and that's what. I like to do in my character. So when people say they saw me in this and they saw me in that, I can't believe it was the same person. When I was doing Follies in L.A., I met with a casting director, Meg Lieberman at CBS, and she said to me, I realize I've seen you in many things over the years, but you're always different. So that's not great for me because she needs you to be a type. And I understand her point completely. But you don't fit. In other words, Danny, you don't fit into a box. And I completely made my career on not fitting into boxes. Years ago, I, I kept, I, I pushed my agents to think outside the box. I, I always want to be somebody different. I, I'd say something comes, a breakdown comes across your desk and it's this big Korean woman who works at the deli. That's me. Put me up for that. I want to try to get in that room and really use my skills to be different. And I kept telling them over the years, please, please, please think of me in different ways. Don't just put me up for the same roles. I don't want to do it and I'll turn them down. I, I really want to do new things. And I got an email from my agent about oh, seven years ago for a film. And the role was a gay, deaf pedophile who worked in a pizza shop in Maine. And I thought, Eureka! <laughs> That's it. That's the role. And I worked my ass off learning sign language and working on that audition. And I got it. And yeah. I did that film. And it was completely different from anything I've ever done. And I just want to keep looking for projects like that, that blow my skirt up. Well, if you've got a role of a Korean woman that works in the deli, <laughs> Annie is here waiting for your call. Pat, I want to talk to you about a little bit more about that and get into that a little deeper about your process as an actor, because I, I, I just don't think people understand it as important as it is to the development of a show. But I, it's a two-part question. So imagine you get a script for a brand new musical, right, with a character that you have to create from scratch. What's the first thing you do? Now, how does that compare to when you get Tevia, Fiddler on the Roof, a role right. obviously that comes with a lot of history that's been done you've seen before? What do you? How do you approach these characters? Well, I always read the play and, and or read the script. I know it's going to sound crazy, but I read it like fifty to a hundred times in preparation for a project. I just kept keep going over it and going over it and trying to find things that are new and. In, I look at it in ways that are, are different each time I try and read it. I try and think of it in, in perspective, in my pers that character's perspective and other characters' perspectives and in ways the director might be looking at it. But ultimately, what I, what I think when I approach a project is what are the rules of the game? Every project has its own rules. It's like everyone is its own sort of game. And once you learn what the rules of the game are, then you can play inside that box and you can push the envelope of what is inside that box. And another thing I never forget is that it's all reality. You have to believe it 100%. I believe Tevya as much as I believe Aldolfo, as much as I believe Tokyo and, and Golden Boy, as much as I believe uh, any one of the other roles that I've done. 
you have to live in that world, and then everything is reality based on the rules of that particular game, that particular project. And usually the director sets up those parameters for you. And then you just play as much as possible and hope that you're telling the right story, or that everybody in the show is telling the same story. When you're working on a new musical, how much input interaction do you have with the writers on something new? Normally, not a hell of a lot, because they're, they have not just you to take care of, they have a whole show to take care of. But I do make it my business to, to take them aside if I can and say, even if it's nothing that I'm involved with, but it's just because I have a big mouth. But I really don't. I just, I just say things if I find it imperative. And I can't, you know, hold back any longer. Something is so blatantly and easily fixable. Hey, let's try this when on a break, that kind of thing, and just suggest it. That's that's how I approach those things. And but I I try to, as I've gotten older, I do I have been able to speak my mind a little more, and they actually pay a little bit more attention to you. Well, as they should, you know. It wasn't I think you know I've been in the business for. 20 years or so, 25 years now. Mm. And it wasn't really until about 10 years ago that I watched an interaction between an actor and a director in the room and realized how vital the opinions of those actors were who were doing this show note after night and feeling it. Oh, yeah. You know what's working in front of that audience. Correct. Or not from the inside Correct. out. Yeah. I was very happy. And with South Pacific, which ran for two and a half years, a month before we closed, I found a new lab. What was it? It was exiting from a scene. God, I knew you were going to ask me that. We were exiting from a scene, and I, I, I added some extra little piece of business. I threw the orange off stage because I was mad. I had an orange in my hand, and I threw it off stage. And a guy yells back at me, "Hey, who threw that?" And he's enormous from what our reactions are, seeing him off stage. And I took the my sidekick and pushed him in front of me as we exited off. I, I forget how exactly how it worked. It was funnier than how I'm describing it. But it was great. And that only comes from listening and being in the moment every single night. All those basic acting things that you have to do. And yeah, writers, producers, directors, they would all be smart to listen to what their actors have to say. I mean... Some of us are assholes, and some of us are crazy, and some eccentric. Some of us are assholes, you know, too, so it's you know, fine. So, but we can actually, it's rare that you get a 100% collaborative kind of experience. There are, they, I have had them. Golden Boy was absolutely one of those, which was so such a beautiful experience. Bart Shear knew exactly what he wanted to do and made many changes, but we were all there finding it together. And the same thing I can be said of Drowsy Chaperone with Casey Nicola and Bob Martin, because they are both unbelievably creative and collaborative and smart. And as Mike Nichols, I'm lucky enough to have known Mike Nichols, said he ultimately, at the end of the day, you're just hoping that the director has good taste. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for these guys. You're going to go up there and give it 100%, and their good taste has to dissect what you just did and point you in the right direction. I love that story about the orange. It's just such an example of what a great actor does, and obviously you are one of those, which is that's not on the page. Just not on the page, and you just 
take something on the page and make it so much better was something that the writer never even imagined. And right. that was obviously many, many years ago when they were right. in that sucker. So you've seen the development of lots of shows over the course of your career from the inside out as well as obviously yeah. you've seen everything. What's the biggest mistake that you think writers make when developing a new musical? And the biggest mistake, as we listen to the fire engine go by, the, the biggest mistake that writers will make is that they think they're finished on the first day, for example. They, they write the piece and they, they think they're finished because they're not sitting back and listening to what is happening in the show. And in a way, Sondheim keeps, you know, I've worked with him four or five times, so they, he keeps changing lyrics, keeps looking for moments. We retooled Follies when we did it a bunch of times. He had brought back old scenes from scripts that were thrown out that he brought back, and, and we looked at that, and we pieced things together. If Steve Sontheim can be collaborative, then everybody should be collaborative. He's the smartest man I've ever worked with. And he's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's funny, because he's also old-time old time Broadway. Are you sure you don't need a button at the end of that number? I think you should get the big applause of it. I'd go, no, I think it works better if we transition, directly transition into the scene, because then I can use the song. I'm thinking about the right girl, the top of Act 2 and Follies. It transitions right into the scene where he tells Sally that he's leaving her. And so if we stop for applause, it just stops the flow of energy. And gave me a big hug on the opening night when we were in D.C., and was very happy with back and he was like you sure you don't feel bad about that i went absolutely not absolutely not it's what serves the play and if you get people to think that way that you're all in it together you're serving the show and it's not about you you know i had loads of stuff that was cut from drowsy chaperone good shit i'm really funny stuff that was brokenhearted i was brokenhearted to lose it and the cast was like what we're gonna lose that scene it's so ridiculously funny but it was right. It was right, and sometimes less is more. And Casey was really smart about it. When he sat me down, this is crazy business, he, you know, he sat me down, and I said, how bad is it? Because I knew it was coming. And, and he said, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> Just like that. But he said, ultimately, it's going to make your character stronger and more succinct. And it did. Yeah. It, what's ironic, of course, is that actors are often, especially when you're in your last dash to Broadway, the last element added. So the writer's been writing this whole time. Maybe you've done a yeah. meeting or workshop, but if not, then there the actors are, and the writers say, oh, we're done. We're just six weeks away from a preview, and right. you guys are just getting started getting right. your hands dirty on it. Right, and in a way, he's just getting started, too, because he's, for the most part, been alone in his room, typing it out, and with suggestions here and there. And they're all smart, and they're all worthwhile, and that process is important. But then it's the next step of the process. And, you know, I always think of that Larry Gelbart line, you know, if, I, if Hitler is alive, I hope he's out of town with a musical. It's the hardest, the hardest, ridiculously crazy process ever. I remember doing, I did the Seagull on Broadway with Tony Roberts, and I asked him what the process of Sugar was like, which is Some Like It Hot, the music that uh, Julie Stein and Robert Merrill wrote. And... He, he said it was insane, insane, like pages stuffed every night, pages stuffed under their hotel room doors at 2 o'clock in the morning. And then 
they would go into the show that night. I mean, day after day of that. That's just so hard. But it's our greatest contribution to the world of theater, musical theater. And I'm honored to be a small part of it. So let's switch to another form of entertainment, the small screen or television or film. Is it a different process for you? Is it how does how does the acting style differ? Is there a difference? You don't. You, in a way, you don't have to do as much. But the, the rules of the game for that are you don't have to do as much, and you have to think it more, and you just have to distill everything to its to its simplest form, and talk about honesty. The cameras right there. Often, I mean, like I've been in <laughs> scenes where the camera is like three inches from your face. And you have to be as honest as possible and know the background of your character, know what's going to happen, what happened before. And I mean, even in stupid TV thing, I, I did the, the first season of Louis C.K.'s TV show. And in it was a wacky scene that was single camera and shot. And then we ended up on his stoop. And I was a Staten Island father. And he was, and he came to the house, knocked on the door unexpectedly, and it ended up with the two of us sitting on his stoop, smoking a cigarette. And then he just started talking, and he said, "So what do you do?" And it's, it's a good thing I thought about it. I said, "Sanitation." And I said, "What do you do?" He said, "I'm a comedian." And I said, "Get the fuck out of here." And he said, "No, no, I'm serious." I said, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." And he said, "It's a living." And I said, "No, it's not." And we just kept on talking. And that wound up being the best part of the scene. And it only happened because he knew his character and I knew my character and we'd both done our homework and we were both ready for that opportunity when it came along. People tell me, ask me about that. It's so hard. The business is so hard and it is. But everybody, I believe, if they're, if they're with it long enough, they get their opportunity. That door opens. It's whether you're ready for that opportunity when it opens. And you just have to be. Otherwise, you'll fall through the crack. What do you think about the current state of Broadway? Well, it's been great lately. <laughs> We've been, things have been going very well. I'm, it's exciting to see people like Lynn. And I, 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 and it also couldn't happen to a lovelier guy and, and a, and a, just a guy who loves Broadway. And, you know, I want to see more plays come around too, more new plays. Now, they're, it's, it's, they're happening in smaller houses, but I don't want Broadway to forget about them and only be exclusively musical theater houses. I want those plays to live in there, too. It's it's really, really important that we cultivate that. you write or direct? Or I've directed, I've written some, but I have that... <laughs> I'm reading... <laughs> Not that I'm equating myself to Leonardo da Vinci, but I'm reading the Walter Isaacson biography of Leonardo... And he had so many ideas for things. And I do have ideas for things. And I start writing them. And he started painting them. And there are so many things he just never finished. And I feel, and I'm reading going, oh, I know. <laughs> I'm reading the book going, That's, I completely understand. Because your mind gets caught up in something else. And I, I tend to be myopic. I, I, I'm not very good at working on two or three projects at the same time. I had to do it, you know, rehearse during the day and do shows at night, but I prefer to keep my mind on the task at hand and give it 9,000%. So I tend to start to write something or, or help somebody direct something and 
I've helped doctor things come in and give advice on projects, but I'm, I'm too afraid to stay away from the acting too long because that's really where my heart lies. I'm afraid I'll put myself into a situation that, where I'm like when I was came here and I was teaching, and I don't want to put myself in that kind of situation. Well, that 14-year-old boy and you still just wants to do this. Yeah. Yeah, it's all I ever really wanted to do. And believe me, I, I, I pinch myself all the time. I know how lucky I am and that I can have a normal life. All I wanted was to have... I, you know, I made a pact with the devil when I was a kid. I, I said I said it out loud. I said in my room alone, all I want is to have a normal life and to be able to work in this business and have the respect of my peers. That's it. I don't want... I don't give a shit about all the rest of that stuff. I really don't. I don't want to... I don't want to... I want to be able to have a normal life. I want to be able to take the train. And when I take the train, people are lovely. I saw you in Fiddler on the Roof. I saw you in this. And, and what are you doing next? And, and they couldn't be nicer. But I have friends who can't walk down the street and can't have a normal lives, can't go shopping for milk. And I knew I didn't want that. I just wanted to have a... be an artist. And I think of myself as... As a vocational guy, as a plumber, this this just happens to be my job. I go to my Broadway show and I, I do do my thing. And then honestly, 100% honest, I, I would go out the back door every single time if, if, if I could. But I realize there's a responsibility to, you know, especially when you're the lead in the show, to come out the, the stage door and sign autographs and greet people and glad hands and all that. But if I could go out and have a burger with a friend after the show and a beer and just talk about anything else. Maybe touch upon it once, but talk about other things, talk about family and politics and sports. That would be wonderful. Your kids, are they interested in the biz? My oldest son is an AD on independent films, and he's also produced short films, and he's trying to get a feature film produced and done a lot of stuff. Working on a commercial today. He's hustling. He's 25 and he's at that age. He's exactly where he should be. And hoping to direct eventually. I think when he feels like he knows enough to direct, which is great. He's, he's learning everything he can. I think that's why he enjoys being an AD because they have to really know the set. They have to know every single part of what's going on and everybody's names and everybody's jobs, and scheduling, and he loves doing that, but I think he can't wait to be more, a little bit more artistic, and take over at the helm job. And my younger son is at Queens College, and he's he plays like 14 instruments, and unclear what he's going to do exactly, but he's incredibly creative, and bright, and funny, and a good kid. All right, my last question, which is my <laughs> genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin, okay. from Casey Nicola's Aladdin, Yay. comes to visit you. James. And, <laughs> I love him. Exactly. Great guy. And wants to thank you for your incredible contributions to the theater. Not only your performances on stage, but frankly, your just devotion and dedication to it, which I've just witnessed over the course of my career. The way you just described it, that's, I've always, you're just a journeyman actor, just a great actor that just loves to do it. It's evident in everything you do. Very kind. So the genie thanks you, I thank you. <laughs> and the genie can offer you one wish, 
as a gesture of his gratitude. Richard Bardot. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Easiest answer. <laughs> so easy. What's the one thing that actually drives you crazy about Broadway? That that does, if you were having a burger with your friends right. after the show, that you'd be like, you know what? I just wish they would change this or this or this. That you'd ask this genie to wish away and change this. I wish it. This. I wish it weren't so damn expensive in every aspect of it. For, for not just for the audience. And there are many ways to get around that, by the way. And there really are. And people need to look for them. But how, how expensive it is to get shows produced. Everybody, everything, for some reason, goes up exponentially when you produce a Broadway show. And it, I, I wish it weren't that way. And so that more people, it would be accessible to more people. More people would be willing to dive in and do more experimental stuff and take more risks with shows. They just There are many projects out there that people feel like, ah, oh, it's a really good play, but I, I just don't know. So it wouldn't be, the risk wouldn't be as great for people to take a chance on somebody new. And because we have to cultivate next generations. And there is a huge stigma about the, and it's not just a stigma, it's a reality about how much things are, how much, how expensive projects are to produce. And that's heartbreaking because I don't want it to keep going in that direction. I want it to actually come back down so more people will be involved and we'll have more ideas and more creative people having their own input. A very good answer, a good wish, and one of mine as well. So thank you for that. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Don't forget to go to my Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport, and click like and make sure your notifications are on to check out my brand new series, Every Day is Different, to see a real live view of what I do every single day. Some really exciting stuff coming up. Go to my Facebook page right now and like it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.